Well, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to page 1,234, 1,234 in the Church Bibles, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. We're continuing in our short series in in Revelation 1 and 2, uh, but uh, we've not been there for a couple of weeks for one reason and another. Patrick Sukdeo was here last week. We had a a guest service the week before that. So we're, we're back in Revelation 2, and this week, verses 12 to 17. Uh, this evening, I'd, I'd like to take you on a little excursion, a, a day trip, if you like, to, uh, well, to where Satan is king, where he is on the throne, as Jesus puts it in chapter 2 and verse 13. Uh, today, you see, we're off to a city called Pergamum. It's the capital city of Asia. And, yes, uh, Jesus called it Satan's city. Now, before we go there, I wonder what picture does that uh, description conjure up in your mind? What do you think this place would look like? A city where Satan is king. Do you think of a war zone like Baghdad? An area devastated by car bombs and civil unrest? A city with the scars of hatred inhabited by terrified people? Is that where Satan rules? Or do you think of a place full of witchcraft? A location like Stonehenge with crystals on sale and and New Age philosophies all the rage? where Druids and Goths are at home. Is that the kind of place you think of when you think of the place that Satan rules? Or does the mention of of Satan's city invoke the picture of an inner city estate where it's not safe to go out at night? A place where drug dealers patrol the streets, where where prostitutes openly sell their wares, where where teenagers wear asbos like a badge of honour. A place like Clapham North where three teenagers have been shot dead in the last few weeks in cold blood, where you're not even safe in your own home. Is that the sort of place you imagine Satan's city to be? Well, here's a great surprise for you this evening. Pergamum, Satan's city as Jesus called it, was not a war zone or a a centre of black magic or an especially immoral or, or socially challenged city. In fact, I'm pretty certain that you and I wouldn't have thought of Pergamum as where Satan rules at all. Well, let's get on with our day trip, shall we? And we'll have a look around the city. Uh, The first stop in Satan's city is the Christian church. And what a church it was. The Christians had really suffered just because they were faithful to Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. What an impressive bunch these Christian people were. Their dear brother Antipas had been murdered for being a Christian. I'm I'm looking forward to meeting Antipas in eternity. He is one of the real heroes of the faith. Get some mention in the Bible. But don't underestimate the courage of the rest of the church too. Because when Antipas was murdered for being Christian, they didn't give an inch. They must have feared for their lives, wondering who would be next. And so they must have been tempted to renounce their faith in Jesus to save their skins. But they didn't, verse 13. They remained true to the name. The name? Jesus Christ. Jesus meaning Saviour. Christ, God's King. God's anointed, king of the universe. He is my saviour and my king. That's what the Christians in Pergamum said under extreme pressure to buckle. 
He is my saviour and my king and I will serve no other. You see, Pergamon was the the centre of the imperial cult. It had no less than three temples built for Caesar worship. And there was huge pressure on the early Christians to declare Caesar is Lord. But they wouldn't do it because Jesus was their king and they knew he was the only one who could save them from an eternal punishment. Now it's reasonable to guess, but it is only a guess, I admit, that Antipas was put to death because he refused to call Caesar Lord. See, that sort of thing happened in the first century. Well, look, we were hearing last week, it happens in the 21st century as well. But going back to the first century, do you know the story of Polycarp, the first bishop of the church in Rome, arrested for being Christian? Here's the account of his being brought before the proconsul. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect to thy old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Then the proconsul urging him and saying, Swear and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since thou art vainly urgent that, as thou sayest, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and pretendest not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast thee, except thou repent. But he answered, Call them then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. But again the proconsul said to him, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing thou despisest the wild beast, if thou wilt not repent. But Polycarp said, Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but thou art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. And moments later, Polycarp was burnt alive. Well, that was Polycarp, but it's reasonable to suggest and to guess that that was the sort of thing that went on with Antipas too. And even though the church witnessed that barbaric evil, they remained steadfast and true to the name of Jesus Christ. You see it there in verse 13. See, that is impressive to read, isn't it? And it is a spur to us to stand for Christ in our situations, tomorrow morning at work, when you're asked to do something that is less than Christian, something that is ethically or morally dubious, or at university when you're out with your mates and they're getting drunk or they're giving you a hard time for being a Christian, or for those of you who live with unbelievers and the pressure is on you, sometimes it's unbearable, then think of the Christians in Pergamum. They faced very real pressure, the very real and present danger of death. They'd seen one of their own antipaths die, yet they remained true to Jesus. They remained true to Jesus in the things they said and in the way they lived. Let them be our inspiration tomorrow. And let's be sure tomorrow, when the heat is on, that we stand for Christ, whatever it may cost us, promotion, pay, prospects, personal costs. And when you do remain true to Jesus, to his name, be encouraged by Jesus' words at the beginning of verse 13. I know where you live. I know where you work. I know where you are at university. 
See, Jesus sees us endure pressure and he says, I know where you live. And I know in that difficult situation you haven't buckled under pressure. And he commends us for it. Isn't that encouraging? Faithful Christian, be encouraged today. Your faithfulness has not gone unnoticed. Jesus Christ has seen it. He knows exactly what's going on. He walks among us. That's how this started way back in, in chapter end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2. Well, that's the church in Pergamum. And you may say to me as we've been looking at that, now I see why Jesus called it Satan's city. But, but wait a moment. For you see, we saw the same happening three weeks ago in Smyrna. Do you remember chapter 2, verse 10? The church there was facing imprisonment and persecution to the point of death, but Jesus didn't describe Smyrna as the place where Satan has his throne. It's striking to realise that it's not the persecution of Christians that leads Jesus to call Pergamum Satan's city. Well, what was it then? Well, here's a shock. It was the religious pluralism of that city. Their willingness to embrace and tolerate any and every religious thought. See, let's leave the church in Pergamon for a moment and continue on our tour uh, with a trip around the city. If you were to walk around Pergamon with me, you'd immediately be struck by the, the temples and the altars all over the city. Overlooking the city was an immense altar to Zeus, 90 foot square by 20 foot high. It looked like an enormous throne and the inscription on it, Zeus is saviour. Uh, Pergamon was the, the Lourdes of Asia. People came from all over the world to receive the healing power of Asclepios, the Greek god of healing, known as the, the god serpent. The, the snake emblem was everywhere in the city. Yeah, you come back from the trip to Pergamum and uh, everybody would see you with your souvenir T-shirts and baseball caps with a picture of a snake and the words emblazoned across the front, Pergamum, the healing capital. But Zeus and Asclepios weren't the only deities to inhabit Pergamum. You could join worshippers paying homage to Dionysus and when you had enough of that, take an open-top bus to the elegant theatre of Athena. And if you had the, remember these little I spy books, if you had the little I spy book of first century religions and you wanted to tick off all the religions you'd seen, you certainly wouldn't miss the opportunity to go behind the city to the great cone-shaped hill. For there you would come to a site of a multitude of heathen temples. And then to top it all, as we've already considered, Pergamum was the centre of the imperial cult. Go to any of the three temples dedicated for Caesar worship and you could throw a little incense on the eternal flame and declare, Caesar is Lord. And if you'd forgotten to take any incense, you could, of course, buy a packet there in the temple at probably an extortionate price. Pergamum, you see, was multi-religious. It was a place where many spiritualities existed side by side. First century Pergamum, or, or shall we call it by the name that Jesus gave it, Satan City, was not so different from most 21st century British cities. Not so different from Sheffield. Sheffield with its new Islamic centre. And if Allah isn't your thing, you can find a Hindu temple, a Jehovah Witness Kingdom Hall, or a spiritualist church to go to, and so we could go on. That's Sheffield, and that was Pergamum. And here's the great surprise from this passage. 
It is this religious pluralism and tolerating it that demonstrates that Satan is king in a city. A society which embraces all the insights of of all and every spiritual opinion is the place that is invited Satan to rule. Now that's a great surprise, isn't it? Satan rules where there is chaos. Uh, Not so much the chaos of war and anarchy, although you can be sure he's behind that too. But he rules where there is chaos over truth. Where the lies of other religions are tolerated. Where Jesus Christ is marginalised and relegated to be one of many. Sounds remarkably contemporary, doesn't it? Satan is on his throne when he's persuaded people that they don't have to follow Jesus Christ. When people believe the lie that all roads lead to God. Satan is ruling because then Satan is leading people along the broad road that leads to destruction. Satan rules where religious tolerance is the watchword. And so it makes you wonder if we are living in Satan's city today. And not just in Sheffield, but in all the major cities of this nation that embrace the thought that other religions are as valuable as Jesus Christ. Where political correctness means that we cannot criticise any religion except, of course, Christianity. Do you want a sign that Satan rules? When Christian cathedrals have multi-faith services, that's when Satan rules and that's happening in 21st century British cities. Do you want another sign that Satan rules? When senior church leaders engage in the type of multi-faith debate that attempts to bring religious unity. Now, please don't mishear what I've just said. It is not bad for Christian leaders to be talking with leaders of other religions in order to take the heat out of ethnic tensions in a society. That's not a bad thing. We want that. What is deeply worrying is when Christian leaders meet with other faith leaders in religious debate and they will not stand up for the uniqueness of Christ as Saviour and King. And that's happening in 21st century British cities. That's when Satan rules. That's the issue here in Pergamum. It's a fight for truth. Now we'll see that more clearly as we look at the text. But you can see it in verse 13. You remain true to my name. That was very important. And yet as we go on, we'll see they hadn't entirely remained true in another area. And we see it most clearly as we take our final part of our tour in Satan City and we're going to return back to the church. See, we've seen what an impressive church it was in being prepared to stand for Christ, even when Antipas was killed. But that's not the whole story. Yes, they had stood for Christ, Nevertheless, says Jesus, verse 14, I have a few things against you. You've people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. See, there were people in the church who held to this teaching of this group called the Nicolaitans. Now, we heard about the Nicolaitans a few weeks ago when we visited the church in Ephesus. There in Ephesus, do you remember, the church was strong on truth. Remember chapter 2, verse 6? They hated the practice of the Nicolaitans. They were strong on truth, but they were weak on love, verse 4. They'd lost their first love for Jesus. 
Here in Pergamum, it's the other way round. They love Jesus. They won't renounce him as Lord and Saviour, but they are weak on truth. And both places are wrong. See, love becomes sentimental if it is not strengthened by truth and truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. We need to preserve the balance of the Bible which tells us to hold the truth in love and to love others in the truth. Well, in the church in Pergamon, they needed to be hotter on truth. They were loving. They just needed to be hotter on truth. And you see, the problem was, verse 15, they allowed people to hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In verses 14 and 15, you'll see Jesus compares this group, the Nicolaitans, with the Old Testament prophet Balaam. You'll find the events of the prophet Balaam in the Bible book of of Numbers, chapters 22 to 25. It'd be worth you reading when you get home. Numbers, chapters 22 to 25, teaches all about Balak and Balaam. But here's a little potted history. In those chapters, we discover that Balak, king of Moab, tried to hire the prophet Balaam to curse the children of Israel. See, King Balak, king of Moab, was afraid that the Israelites, being so numerous, would attack his people and defeat them. And he thought if he could only get this prophet Balaam to curse the people of God, then his own people would be safe. And so Balak, this king, offered Balaam, the prophet, a very lucrative contract to send a curse upon the Israelites. But every time that Balaam prophesied, every time he opened his mouth, God gave him words only of blessing for the Israelites. King Balak was livid. He paid him to give them a curse and every time he spoke he gave them blessing. Well, actually, although King Balak was uh, was livid, the, the prophet Balaam wasn't too happy either because he was greedy. He wanted King Balak's money. But every time he opened his mouth, he said blessing rather than curse, and so he suddenly hit upon another plan. Let's summon the Moabite women to go among the Israelite men to seduce them. And then, when they've got their man, to lead them to worship the gods of Moab. And then the Lord will be angry with them. And the plan worked a treat. Uh, We read it earlier in Numbers chapter 25, the end of it, how the Israelite men were seduced by the Moabite women and then were ready to uh, worship the Moabite gods. And if you read the whole sordid affair when you get home, chapters 22 to 25 of, uh, of Numbers, then here's another verse for you to have in mind. It's chapter 31 and verse 16 because there it becomes clear that the prophet Balaam thought up the scheme. But you can look at that when you get home. Chapter 31, verse 16. The point is this. The Israelite men were enticed into sexual sin with the Moabite women who then led them to idolatrous worship and the Lord's anger burned against his people Israel. And now, do you see, the Nicolaitans were doing the same thing. Verse 14, they entice God's people into idolatry and sexual immorality. And lo and behold, the same thing is happening in the church in Britain today. What a surprise. Church leaders all over the country are leading people into idolatry. Can you believe it? Using language that sounds grand. 
but it is actually denying the teaching of Jesus himself. They say we have an inclusive God. It's half true, isn't it? The way they use it, it's not true at all. We have an inclusive God who will accept people of any religion providing they're sincere. It's not true. He will accept people of any religion providing they become Christian. He's very inclusive. But he's not inclusive of all other religions. And so they deny Jesus' own words. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Why did Jesus have to die if religion could get you to God? If other religions, he wouldn't have gone to the cross if other religions could get you there. And right now, the Anglican Church worldwide is dangerously close to collapsing over the issue of human sexuality. Anglican archbishops from all over the world meeting in Tanzania right now are in crisis because senior churchmen refuse to teach that the only place for sex is heterosexual marriage. Now let me say there may well be people here who are heterosexual and homosexual who are struggling with sex outside of marriage. It does not mean that you are not acceptable to God as you turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. But the Bible is clear, isn't it? There is only one place that is right for sex, heterosexual marriage. So like Balaam in the Old Testament and like the Nicolaitans in Pergamum, leaders in the church today entice people to sin by saying that all religions are legitimate and that sex can be appropriate in relationships that are other than heterosexual marriage. And it's happening in churches not so far from here, in Sheffield. They may not use the same name, but the Nicolaitans are not extinct. And just cast your eye back to chapter 2, verse 6 and see what Jesus thinks of them. He hates, hates their practices. Now here's a huge surprise. If the first surprise is what is Satan's city, that it's all about religious tolerance, here's the second huge surprise. The church in Pergamum didn't suffer with false leaders among them. We'll see that next week in Thyatira. No, the church in Pergamum just had some people in the congregation who held to the teaching of Nicolaitans. And that is what Jesus has against the church in Pergamum. See verse 15? They had people in the congregation who held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now do you see what this tells us here today? If we have people in this congregation who hold to the teaching that legitimises other religions or that excuses sexual immorality, Jesus will hold it against us. This is not about what the leadership are teaching, although if we were teaching things that were like that that were wrong, it would be even worse. But that's not what it's about. This is saying we cannot even allow it to go unchecked among the congregation. The story of Balaam the prophet is terrifying. Look, turn with me, if you will, to it. Um, at, at page, um, at page 164. Numbers chapter 25. Page 164, Numbers 25. Look with me at verses 1 to 3. 
that while Israel was staying in Chittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, there's the first bit, who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods, there's the second bit, the people ate and bowed down before these gods, so Israel joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord's anger burned. The Lord is holy and he cannot tolerate such wickedness. The way they acted dishonoured the Lord's name. You'll see that in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 25. The name of the Lord was dishonoured. The the reason this matters, it's it's an issue over the honour of the name of Jesus. This is not a secondary issue. And the whole people of God were affected. They they weren't all involved in that, but they were all affected. Verse 9, 24,000 people died in the plague sent by the Lord. Now listen, if you are a member of this church, incidentally, if you're just visiting this church, then come as, as often as you like and find out what we're doing. But if you are a member of this church and you are sexually immoral... If you are a member of this church and you have embraced a teaching that says that it is illegitimate to have sex outside heterosexual marriage, if you are a member of this church and you accept other religions as a valid way to God, then potentially you are robbing this church of the Lord's blessing and you are likely to lead others astray. For just a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And for that reason, we must not turn a blind eye to sexual immorality among us or to religious idolatry among us. You see, it was only when the Israelites rooted out that evil that the plague stopped. And as we go back to Revelation chapter 2, that is why Jesus commands the church in Pergamum to repent. Do you see it there? Back in Revelation chapter 2, page 1, 2, 3, 4... Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It is a word of warning and a word of judgment. Jesus will come in judgment, fighting against those who refuse to repent. He will come with the sword of his mouth. Indeed, that's how Jesus introduced himself at the very beginning of this letter. Do you see it there in verse 12? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. The double-edged sword, the sword of his mouth, verse 16. And that tells us a lot, doesn't it? We fight against false teaching with the word of God. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I cannot persuade anyone to change. The word of God can. My opinion counts for nothing, but the word of God is powerful and it is the final word in the whole universe. And some of you will have felt that tonight. Some of you are sexually immoral or idolatrous or both and Jesus, the almighty king of the universe, has commanded you tonight to repent not only for your sake but for the sake of this church family. You see, the word of God exposes false ideas and wrong practice. So we must teach it and it must be our rule. It must be our rule even when it means speaking against those among us who hold to other teaching. 
Now look, Forward is known for being a church which teaches the word of God good. But do we hold to it? No good if we teach it and don't hold to it. Is the word of God our rule, even when it hurts? And let me tell you how it's going to hurt. When it affects people we know in the congregation who are refusing to obey the word. When people we know and people we like and people we love are living contrary to God's word, is the word of God still our rule? Even when we need to tell our friends that they are wrong? Or will we put the word of God down at that point and just say, it's okay what you're doing? Do you see, they didn't take the word of God as their rule in Pergamum. They allowed people to hold to this teaching. And Jesus held it against them. These are difficult times. The world will not, will not thank us for standing against sexual immorality and the idolatry of other religions. Sadly, many in the church will not thank us either, but uh, in, be encouraged as we close. Jesus says in verse 17, halfway through, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, I'll also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. The manna is heavenly food. The promise is of a wonderful banquet in the new creation. We sang of it earlier. So much better than eating food sacrificed to idols as they were doing in verse 14. And the white stone of verse 17, well, no one really knows. You can read all the books, no one really knows. But it seems that a white stone could have been a token for admission to a banquet. What a lovely picture. Jesus promises a ticket to eternity to all who are really his and then he promises a wonderful banquet when we're there. And so he says, overcome. Remain true to my name. And don't allow others among us to hold to the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, let's turn to pray. Let's have a moment of silence and then after we've, uh, after we've made our own response to the living God, maybe one or two of you needing to repent of something you believe or something you're living, after a moment of silence, Andrew will lead us in our prayers of intercession.